maybe the driest and maybe the worst kind of hook at the beginning of a sermon could be remind you about uh, the distinction between inductive and deductive, which we talked about quite a bit when we had a Sunday school class on inductive Bible study. Does anyone remember the difference? It's sometimes hard to kind of put voice to. Um, let me explain it this way. You can have, when you go to see someone preach, you're going to hear, hear a preacher, inductive or deductive sermons. A deductive sermon is going to tell you everything at the beginning, all cards on the table. This is old school preaching like I grew up with. Many of you probably did too. I'm going to tell you the four A's of Advent. Advent is awesome. Advent is action-oriented. Advent, I don't know. And then you tell all the things, so there's no surprises, and then you go through. That's deductive. And actually, in our Bible study, we want to stay away from that because we want to have an open mind when we go into the text and let it lead us. And so you can have an inductive sermon. This is how I usually try to preach, where I'm just like, let's together get into this story and just kind of discover it together. Um, and I'll inject things, interject things that I think will be helpful to you, and then try and pull it into an application. And what's interesting is, when you look at the scriptures, you know, there's four Gospels. And people often, well, why do we need four? Why not just one? Well, there's all different kinds of people. Some people really connect with John, who is very deductive. Look at the Christmas story in John, right? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, he was with God in the beginning, and everything that was made. He goes, he, he, he's like, here you go. This is going to be a story about God himself. He was with God, actually is God in the flesh. He becomes incarnate. He walks amongst us. He shines in the darkness. The darkness can't overcome. He wins. All right, let's start the story. And yet, you look at Luke, and he throws us just randomly into the birth of John the Baptist foretold. So now all of a sudden we're like, I'm going to read the story of Jesus, and I'm in here with this priest, Zechariah, his wife, Elizabeth. We're like, who are these people? They're probably Christians who have been Christians their whole lives. If they started reading Luke, and say, who are these people? Uh, then all of a sudden we're in the middle of the temple, which, you know, we associate more with the Old Testament. There's this prophecy, and then, and then uh, Mary enters, and then we go back to Elizabeth, it's discovering it along with the author. And I really connect with Luke. It's my, by far my favorite uh, gospel, as you can tell, because I preach on it more often than the others and even preach through the entire thing over the course of like a year and a half. And today is no different because this is where we find the first prayer, Christmas prayer, we are going to look at in this inductive, throw you right into the middle of it type of a story. And that is very fitting because Mary, at this point, has been thrown right in the middle of something. She wasn't told from the beginning, okay, this is how it's going to go, and then God going to do this and this and this. No, God doesn't tell her ahead of time. He's being inductive with her. He's like, hey, guess what? I got news for you. And she says, huh? Well, you're going to be uh, with child, and the child within you will be of the Holy Spirit, and you will call his name Jesus because he will save the people from their sins. Now, how old is Mary? We probably think about 14, 15. She's betrothed to Joseph. She's got plans, she's got how her life is going to go, and then everything is turned upside down. And she reacts like you'd expect any teenage girl to react. She says, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be done to me as you have said. In other words, we're, we're really right, I think, uh, to some degree to lift this woman up as a very high example of faith. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater with Mary. Oh, we don't want to worship her. It's the, okay, yeah, obviously don't worship her, but... Definitely uh, one of the heroes of the faith, uh, as far as heroes of faith. The faith she has is something to be uh, emulated. Uh, and you know what I love about Mary in this story is 
She doesn't, I mean, yes, she responds in the moment with, yes, I'm all in, let's do this. It messes up my whole life, it messes up my whole plan, but I'm your servant, whatever you say. And that doesn't wear off, it doesn't fade. You know, I don't know about you, but I tend to, you know, I have a great experience when I was younger at church camp or something, or in a revival, at a church service, at an event, you know, Promise Keepers or one of these things. And it's, you're on a spiritual high. It's like you're on the Mount of Transfiguration, and then it begins to fade. And it kind of slowly goes away. Not with Mary. Now, granted, she doesn't have the option to just be like, you know what, never mind. I'm not going to have the child because it's, it's happening. But she doesn't go into kind of like a denial. She doesn't just not think about it. She immediately says, what should I do next? And what we find that she does is she goes to visit her relative, Elizabeth. Elizabeth's on her mind. Why? The angel Gabriel said, even your relative Elizabeth, who was thought to be barren, is pregnant, and she is in her fifth month. And so she's got Elizabeth on the mind. She goes. We're not told exactly why. I assume part of it is confirmation. She, you know, we've been, she, an angel appeared to me, said that my barren, probably old aunt, cousin, we're not quite sure, probably some kind of a fairly close cousin, is with child, if I could see that with my eyes, that would build up my faith. It made me think the rest of this stuff might, might be true as well. I assume part of it is to get counsel. The moment these two women see each other, it becomes immediately clear they have a special relationship, right? Like she's almost like another mother to Mary. So she goes and, and they, they encourage each other and lift each other up. And they're both going through something similar, a miraculous pregnancy. That's a small club of people. It's not that small throughout scripture. That's a fairly common miracle that God does. But as far as people on the world at that moment, uh, that's about it. Many people think maybe she went to just get away from everything. She's, you know, thinking I'm going to start to show at some point. I would rather be somewhere else. I don't know, maybe. And we couldn't fault her if she had. I think mainly she went to help, right? She gets there and what? We've got a woman who's in her sixth month. She stays three months. I get nine months. I think she's there to help. you got to big job ahead of you here as someone in the first century giving birth and then having to care for a newborn and all this. It's good to have a young woman around uh, who can help and, and, and uh, encourage you through all this kind of stuff. So they come together and the moment they see each other, good grief, I love this story. Uh, Elizabeth just stops in her tracks and she feels the baby leap in her womb and it's filled with the Holy Spirit. This is quintessential Luke. Luke is a doctor who's writing these words, so he's got interest in things medical throughout, and a detail guy, absolutely. And so he tells us this little thing that happened. It's not a big deal, right? If you, who, who's either been pregnant or known someone who's been pregnant? Six months, kids are leaping, right? They're cartwheeling, they're spin kicking, they're punching. This is normal. And yet Luke sees it as something very, very significant, uh, you know, I remember when Aaron was pregnant, people wanted to feel the baby. You know, people were just creepy guys. Like, ah, oh, touch your stomach. Did you tell me that one time someone just touched your stomach without permission and you just touched his stomach back? <laughs> I believe that is something that I always, if people would ask her, like in the mall, they walk up and be like, can I touch your stomach? I'd be like, oh, come here. I had Thai for lunch, man. I got some stuff yeah. going on in here. You can check that out. But to Luke, even though it's so tiny. This is, I mean, she's in the clothes, the garb of the day. You can't see this. No one can see this happening. Only one person's aware of it in the whole world. And yet it is so significant in the text. It gets one line, 
Caesar Augustus gave an order that everyone in the Roman world should return to his hometown for a census. He gets one line. These things are equally important, and that's the theme of this prayer. Okay, the big thing, the little thing, are equally important here. So we have God being, and we just were talking about this, transcendent and imminent. Those are terms you should remember. They don't come up in the Bible. They're theological terms, but you need them because they give kind of legs to a lot of of ideas about God that the scriptures contain. Transcendent, meaning he's above everything. He's bigger than everything. He's he's beyond everything. God created billions of stars that no one will ever see. Why? It's because he's awesome and he could and he wanted to. That's how big our God is. And yet imminent, meaning he's with us in our darkest moments when we're like, no one cares about me right now. Nothing, when you're married and you're scared, what's going to happen when they see that I'm not yet married, I'm engaged and I'm pregnant and Joseph's going to look at me and go, I didn't do that. He's with her. He's with us. He's down with us. Not one sparrow can fall from the sky. God doesn't notice. This is the theme, again, of this prayer in many ways. And, and, and Caesar doing something that he thinks is world-shaping and a tiny little baby that's forming in a belly, moving, are both God at work. And in that moment, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't miss that. And you might think, what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Is it like how we're filled with the Holy Spirit? Remember, before Pentecost, it's a temporary thing, right? People are filled with the Holy Spirit. God's anointed continually. David is. Saul is. It's something that comes and goes in different ways. That's an interesting study of its own. I would say when you read this, think of being filled with other stuff, filled with jealousy, right? Filled with anger, filled with a desire for a mixy melt, right? We're filled with something. It controls us to some degree, or at least it compels us in some direction to do something. The Holy Spirit fills people in the scriptures. Nine times out of ten, the result is they speak the words of the Holy Spirit. Once in a while, someone's filled with the Holy Spirit, they go kill a bunch of Philistines. Usually, they speak, and, and even if they're not a prophet, they speak prophetically. Even if they're not predicting stuff in the future, they're speaking prophetically. By the way, this is probably also a gauge for us to see if the Holy Spirit is filling us and we are allowing him to have his way in us, what comes out of our mouths. Um, Let's move on before I convict myself. Um, How is it then that she responds to the presence of this young girl who is, by the way, at most one month pregnant? So again, it's the Holy Spirit telling her that this woman is not only pregnant, but pregnant with, quote, my Lord, the mother of my Lord, She's filled with the Holy Spirit, and she says, who am I? I think this is so cool. Elizabeth, the mother of you, you wonder how did John the Baptist learn all this stuff? Well, we don't know if she taught him a recipe for locusts and honey, but when John says, I must decrease, he must increase, and we talk about John this past Sunday and this next Sunday, he learned that from mom. She's, who am I? Yes, in our culture, I'm your elder, you should revere and respect me, I see you and I say, who am I that the mother of my Lord should visit me at all? That I should even be in your presence. And and so she's already doing this thing that her son is going to do. He's already doing it in her womb. (laughs) This kind of announcing the coming of the Messiah uh, just for his mother. And then 
Mary responds with this just beautiful prayer slash song. It's both. It's a prayer. It's a song of praise. And it's beautiful. It's perhaps the most beautiful thing in all of the scriptures. And that is why many scholars and even some Christians will say this really probably wasn't what Mary said in this moment. You know, probably what happened is the Christian community thought, wouldn't it be cute if we took some of our hymns and attributed them back to people? Like this is this hymn is what Mary said. This is what uh, Zechariah said, which we'll look at next week, the Benedictus. Uh, this one is what Simeon said in the temple. But don't miss that, yeah, it's too perfect. Yeah, it's too poetic. Yeah, it's got too much Christian theology that wasn't even theology yet. But the Holy Spirit is at work here. She literally has Jesus inside her in every possible way, okay? Jesus is spiritually indwelling her. He's physically growing inside of her. Her food is causing him to grow. This is a connection. We shouldn't write this off. And even if that supernatural thing wasn't present, this is a, yes, she's 14, 15-year-old girl. That means she's already been bat mitzvahed. She's already a woman. She went through it a rigorous training as a Jewish girl in which she would learn the scriptures, learn to meditate on them, memorize huge chunks of them, learn to read, write, and recite them. And so this stuff's in her heart. They'd recite these things at the feast days and the celebrations. This is when you put that stuff in your heart in a moment when you're overwhelmed, that's what comes right back out. So we hear kind of hints of some of these songs of the Old Testament that are also prayers. The Song of Miriam, the Song of Hannah, especially the Song of Deborah. In fact, the Song of Hannah is incredibly closely connected. There's direct quotes, there's allusions to it. Uh, the story of Hannah, uh, who, who can sum that up quickly? Cliff's notes that puppy. She prayed that she would have a child when Eli was the priest in the temple. Mm -hmm. and, and before that, she couldn't have a child. But after she prayed, and Eli's... I don't think Eli even knew what she was asking for. He thought she was drunk. Thought she was drunk, yeah. Yeah, but he said, whatever you prayed for, you know, it will happen. And her husband was clueless and was like, aren't I as good as ten sons? And she was like, oh my gosh, yeah, seriously. That, 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 that was the other wife. Penuel, yeah. Yeah. Kept having babies. That's a common story of scriptures. So you have Hannah then. She was praying. The reason he thought she was drunk was because her mouth was moving, and no words were coming out. This is a secret, quiet prayer in her heart. And Eli never even finds out what it is until she has the child and dedicates him to the temple. And so it's very similar, but it's also very different. Because this is an imminent answer to prayer in the case of Hannah, right? This is what she wants more than anything, is a baby boy. And now she's got it. Mary, she wasn't praying and praying for a baby boy. This complicates things in a bad way for her. And so there's still an answer to prayer. It's a transcendent answer to prayer. God is answering. She, she's, she's looking at her life going, oh my gosh, this just got more messed up. And God's going, I'm answering the prayers of Israel, crying out for re redemption, for deliverance. I'm answering the, the groanings of all creation, looking for salvation. And so when she sees what's going on, the first word out of her mouth, is magnify. And you go, wait a minute, my translation starts with my soul magnifies. You got the Greek New Testament, see, it starts with magnify. Uh, magnifies my soul, the Lord. Uh, and it's, it's emphatic. This is why we call this prayer the magnificat, because in the Latin Vulgate, that's the first word in it, magnificat, which means magnify. 
Uh, and uh, the NIV, I think, says my soul glorifies the Lord. Not quite. Not quite right. Magnifies means what? Makes it bigger, or at least appear bigger. Right? And what's the, the Greek here? Megalune. It means makes it mega. Makes it, making things big. Or the Simpsons would say embiggens. Right? Um, my soul makes... Now, how can I make God bigger? He's already <laughs> infinite. I can make him bigger in my soul. Right? It makes me think of the Chronicles of Narnia. I don't remember who exactly it was. One of the... Calvin, you probably remember this. One of the children sees Aslan, the lion, who's the Christ figure, and says, Aslan, you're bigger than the last time I saw you. And he says, I think it was, yeah, Lucy, he says, it's because you're older. And she says, not because you're older? He's like, no, no, no. Every time you see me, you'll be older, and I will be bigger. You're not, I'm not changing, you're changing. And so I seem bigger, and that's what's happening here. So we're always going to have God in a box, quote, unquote. Everyone worries about having God in a box. We always will. We have finite minds, and he's infinite. So he'll always be in a box. He knows this. He comes down and he, he caters to us in spite of that and he condescends to us. What's important is that the box is always growing and that we recognize it will literally be growing forever. We'll be learning new things about God for eternity and never run out of new things to learn. How amazing is that? My soul magnifies the Lord. So while God's getting bigger, then Mary's saying, now this is going to sound like a bad pregnancy joke, but Mary says, I need to be getting smaller. I need to be getting smaller because she says, I, I've seen my, he has seen my humble estate. God has looked on the humble estate, the smallest of the position of his servant. And her humble estate, this is a direct quote from Hannah's song in the Septuagint. The humble estate of his servant. In other words, what would we expect any teenage girl, or really any human to do in this situation? I don't deserve this, right? You're looking at your life, you hear um, that... This is all happening. You're going to have a baby. It's not your husband's baby. It's the Holy Ghost. You're going to have to be the one to you know, explain all this. I would think that she would want to complain. That she would want to kind of uh, make a formal uh, grievance with the, the management. Yeah, yeah. And instead, she focuses on the fact that she doesn't deserve it as a very positive thing. That God is at work. She doesn't have the kind of entitleitis that we have today. I deserve everything. I deserve more back on my taxes and a higher wage. And I deserve better gas mileage. And I deserve the best phone. And I deserve all this stuff just because I'm me and I breathe air. This is not the point of view of Mary. She's very humble. Her humble estate is both the fact that she's nothing special and the fact that she bows down, bends down low before God and, and praises him for even noticing her and making her any part of his plan, even though this is no this is no answer to her imminent prayers. She says, You're answering the you're you're working out your will, and blessed am I. Now, now remember, she said, um, Elizabeth said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. That's how we know Elizabeth is Catholic. And so she's already been called blessed. That's the first beatitude in Luke, by the way. And then she says, All generations will call me blessed. So there's another blessed here. And one of the main titles of Mary is what? The Blessed Virgin. The Blessed Virgin Mary. Don't freak out when you hear that. It's not like evil people plot stuff. It's just what we, she, she herself says. All generations will call me this. But notice there's actually another word in here. Behold. I was kind of ramping, or, uh, pounding on this a couple Sundays ago. It's a word that we kind of miss, ignore in the Bible. 
It means look, look. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. Look, look at what God is doing. And she shifts in this from looking at her little situation, the imminent, to pointing to look at what God is doing. All that God is doing in the world on a transcendent level. She begins to say, He is mighty, has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. She's talking about God lifting up the humble, those of humble estate, and humbling the proud. This will be one of the main themes of Jesus' ministry, actually. It's also one of the main themes of Hannah's prayer. It's also kind of the kingdom of God in a nutshell, right? The humble being lifted up, the proud being humbled. And in the world, the religious world especially, that she inhabited, the idea was you lift yourself up. You make yourself more and more and more righteous, and you want you want honor, you want glory, uh, and you, your ultimate goal, maybe, if you're going to go down that track, if you're a man, is to become a rabbi. Because what's rabbi mean? Literally, my great one. It's a possessive, <laughs> possessive singular of rave great. So my great one. You want you want to be called that? And Jesus says, "Listen, no, no, no. This the kingdom of God's backwards, upside down." So it's like when you go to a banquet, you're tempted to be like, well, I should probably sit over here. And I think of anybody seen, the guy who made Downton Abbey made a movie called Gosford Park. Anyone seen that? The servants are in the basement. They sit according to rank of whoever they're servant for. And someone sits in the wrong spot and is just humiliated because since when does a countess outrank a duchess or something? I don't even know how it goes. She has to move down. Jesus says, listen, you, you go sit near the bottom of the table. And then the master of the house is going to say, what are you doing? Come on up. That's better than to sit near the top and have someone show up that outranks you. And then you have to, this is the kingdom of God, that you humble yourself and God will lift you up. We see this already before Jesus has even been born. He humbles the proud and, and he gives grace and strength to the humble. His mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Not just the proud outwardly, or it's obvious, but those who are proud in their innermost being. I mean, we could go through the list of who God has humbled in the scriptures. Pharaoh, I'm a God, I'm in charge. I don't recognize your God, Yahweh, and I'm not going to let your people go. All right. Yeah, enjoy being completely humiliated over and over and over again, and also have a nice swim. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, right? He stands up, look at, you know, Babylon the Great, which I have made, essentially taking on that God role. And then what happens? The guy winds up, like, eating grass like an animal. He's got feathered hair. That's embarrassing. This whole thing where he years, he's out of his mind. And then God humbles him and restores him. The Sadducees and the Pharisees both humble. Peter, Jesus' faithful disciple. Oh, I'll never leave your side. I'm, I'm the one. I'm the guy. I will, I'll be with you to the end. And Jesus says, look, I love you, man, but tonight you will deny me three times. Deny that you even know me. And then once he is humbled, next time Jesus sees him, what? He restores him and lifts him up. And, and still, upon, by the way, did I tell you that I stood in the spot where that happened? <laughs> that was the one time everyone was like, come on, we got to leave. And I'm like, oh, 25 more minutes. Uh, opposite happens, right? The, the lifting up of those who are humble. Mary and Elizabeth are two great examples. Neither of them is going, well, yeah, of course. Both of them are saying, who am I? Who am I that this should happen 
to me. Uh, Jesus himself modeled this for us. Uh, who had Philippians 2, 9 through 11? Therefore, God has highly called him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we read that he set aside his glory, humbled himself, and now as a result, God lifts him up and every knee will bow, every tongue confess. And all of us, First uh, Peter 5, 6, who, who finally caved to that one? Um, Margaret. I do. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Perfect. Lift you up. You lift you up, he will humble you. And this is a beautiful theme also of this, of this prayer. She's celebrating that God is doing these things. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones, talk about transcendent, and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. She sees this as the answer to all of those many, many prayers, a transcendent answer. And who is she to be part of it? So Luke is picking up on this, this rabbinical concept of the anavim, which is a Hebrew word for lowly poor, or kind of meant the pious poor, the poor in spirit. Those who were so poor, all they had was God, and they clung to him. Jesus will also talk about that. His first uh, beatitude in Matthew is, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who are uh, low and know their lowness and approach God, not feigning humility, but truly acknowledging that they don't deserve anything but judgment from him. Jesus continually reminds not, not the, the healthy, but the sick need the doctor. I'm not here for people who think they've got it all together. In fact, for them, all I'm going to do is diagnose. Oh yeah, here's all the sin. Goodbye. For those who come to him and say, I need to be healed. He picks them up. The woman who touches the hem of his garment, the man with the withered hand, again and again and again we see him reaching out to those who recognize their need. And Mary gets this perhaps before anyone and perhaps better than anyone. She, again, has the advantage that Jesus himself is in her and he's growing in her, literally. But you and I ought to be able to say the same thing spiritually, Christ in me. Christ is growing in me. He's, I'm magnifying him. He's, he's not really bigger, but as far as my soul is concerned, he, he's bigger. I see him bigger. I recognize him bigger. He's increasing. I'm decreasing. There, there was this one time Jesus was preaching in Luke 11. And in the middle of his preaching, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the, the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. You know, how you talk to people. And uh, <laughs> what a weird thing to shout. But he said, so this is someone's trying to magnify Mary. By the way, does Mary want to be magnified by anyone today or prayed to or lifted up as the queen of anything? No, no, no. Mary's like, not me, him. I'm humble estate. Uh, he says, indeed, even more blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Meaning you and I are actually in a better position than Mary. Because you see, it's great, it's an honor to be the mother of the Messiah. But who are my brothers? Who are my sisters? Who is my mother? He says to the crowds, but those who hear the word of God and do it. Now that includes Mary, but 
you know, we're all in that same boat now of having Christ in us, of, have, of having the option of magnifying Christ that he grows in us and to hear his word and not just hear it, but be doers of the word. Finally, verse 56, and Mary remained there about three months and returned to her home. By the way, the fact that birth of John the Baptist comes after that, the pericope, doesn't mean she wasn't there for that uh, when you begin to understand how narrative works in the New Testament world. Uh, so she's going back home now, three to four months pregnant, and things are going to be way different than when she left. She can't hide this anymore, and yet she is, in all this, a model in a culture where this would be very difficult for her, a model of embracing God's transcendence, his plan, and being just overwhelmed with gratitude and almost a little bewildered that God would include her. Regardless of what it does in her life, regardless of of the complications, this reversal of lifting up the, the lowly and bringing down mighty ones from their thrones is something to praise God about. And, you know, she knows that dishonor will only last a short time, but she will be honored forever. All generations will call me blessed. This is kind of what all Christians have to face, right? There is scorn and ridicule and nothing good anymore in the world for being a Christian. You're, you're laughed at for, you know, believing that there was a worldwide flood and you're mocked for being a hypocrite and you're looked down on like some kind of knuckle-dragger that doesn't understand the sophisticated new morality. And we know that that's not going to last forever. That our being lifted up when we allow ourselves to be humbled. And, and we remember, blessed are you when people mock you and laugh at you and say all sorts of false things about you for my sake. For great is your reward in heaven. That's a merry mindset. And the message here, I think, for us, and especially in our prayer lives, is to remember that life happens inductively. We want it, many of us, I know there are free spirits who just want to like drift around Europe with a backpack on. I like life to be deductive. I like to be like, here it is. I know Aaron does, she'll make a PowerPoint and everything. And that's how we like it. That's not how it happens. And when life comes in a different direction that we didn't see coming, and it's inductive. It's so easy to say, I don't deserve this, right? Why? Rather, Scripture makes a repeated theme, especially in Luke, that we can't look to what we deserve. Thank God we don't get what we deserve. And thank God we get what we don't deserve. And when that is on our minds when we pray, we'll be more likely to move quickly from the imminent what's going on right here, like Mary does, to the transcendent, praising God, from whom all blessings flow, the God who made everything that is, and far more likely in those moments to respond like she did. I am the Lord's servant. Let it be done to me as you have said. Anybody have any additional wonderful insight on that or thoughts or questions for the group? I don't know how wonderful it is, but as a musician... Um, Magnificat has been set to music by composers from probably from very, very early that I don't know about, up till the concert I was in on Sunday, uh, British composer John Rutter, uh, 20th century composer, and it's a seven movement work, and it, 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 it some of it's the Latin and then there's some other things from different cultures, and but the, the point is that this prayer, this song, has influenced generations 
And the, I think we as Baptists, we as Protestants, don't want to, you know, as you say, back away from there. So much that my daughter said, well, that had nothing to do with Christmas. And said, what? <laughs> I said, Aaron, it's Mary's song. Oh, I never knew that. See, the thing is that, you know, we, we yeah, come to church, yes, but, but over the years, she didn't pick that up. And over the years, as a Protestant, you don't hear all that much about it. There's a great little book in our library called uh, Honored that Aaron's publisher put out that I love. I have a copy myself, too, and it, I would recommend checking that out. It's in the bottom row in the middle in the Christmas it's like, section. Yeah, it's a bunch of Christmas books. I think the last name is Door, D-O-R-R. It's a little gift book, but it's, but it's all text. It's, it's, it's a quick read and, and really kind of a reminder. Yeah, I mean, first of all, the whole, like, if the Catholics like this, we can't is to me a little yeah. 17th century or something. Um, but, but also, yeah, it's illogical. All this stuff is God's. Um, and different Christian traditions uh, emphasize different things and go down to different extremes, but someone else going to an extreme is, yeah, no reason for us to avoid wonderful. I mean, there are people who worship lakes. That's a fact, right? It's all right. Enjoy the lake. Go swimming. Thank God for it. You know, go sunbathing at the lake. It's okay. It's not, it's not poisoned. Um, yeah, I, I think that's that's a good point, and and the fact that people have continued to set it to music, I, I think that's. Do you think Mary had any notion of that? It's just her and Aunt Lizzie or whatever she is to her, and she's just speaking extemporaneously out of her heart, and now we're singing it. in front of the choir singing Mary's words in different settings, in different languages, Latin, English, anything. Playing the part for that moment, but you know, and you wonder how how musicians, how singers, when you when you take in that part and you sing that, you sing a few solos where you were Mary's words in cantatas and stuff. I probably, you know, it's interesting to me that um, how do you feel as you're doing that? That like you you rarely see. Like the the nativity story is the is the thing you see most acted out through history as well, you know. Like all these other stories in scripture, but yearly. I mean, you'll get like the Last Supper acted out every year at Easter. Mm-hmm. You know, you but you always get the nativity acted out, and so you always see Mary. And, and then there's the song Mary. Did you know? Yeah, she didn't. She totally yeah. did, actually. Gabriel told her. Well, the whole shebang, right up to the very end of, you know. She knew a certain amount. She didn't know everything that was going Well, she knew a sword would would pierce her own heart, so it was going to end very badly, whatever that meant. Yeah. Yeah, Mary, yeah, not only, you know, she, she could have gone down this kind of I'm special route, but very quickly would have become clear that this particular honor was came with an awful lot of suffering and trial, which is a wonderful metaphor for like the Christian life in general, I think. It's a great honor and you're signing up to take up a cross every morning. I don't know how much I meant I meant I think to tie that to our own prayer lives more. I don't think it matters. And I didn't so much. <laughs> okay. 
Um, I think the, the takeaway vis-a-vis prayer is um, to look at our own situations, and when we're tempted to be obsessed with the microcosm that is, look what's going on for me, uh, to take the cue from Mary, to kind of zoom way, way, way out and say, wow, God, you really are at work, and you've, you know, look at all the things you're doing and have done, uh, and to to be willing to submit the way that she did. What, what a wonderful example for Christians. So, with that in mind, let's pray uh, some imminent transcendent prayers. I don't know how to stop this thing.